Have you ever had a privilege removed because you did something wrong? Have you ever forfeited an opportunity because you failed to do what you were told? Can you relate to any of the following? Have you ever heard these words whispered to you? You're grounded until you apologize to your mother. You're suspended without pay until you obey your supervisor. Go to the principal's office and stay there until you stop fighting with your classmates. I'm taking your smartphone away until you start to show some self-control. <laughs> you ever experienced a, an event like that in your life where a privilege, an opportunity was taken from you because you failed to do what you should do? This is what happened to all of us not too far after God created the world. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, millennia ago, when Adam and Eve, our ancestors, the first man and the first woman, sinned against God, God said this. It says, He drove out man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, that's the angels, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, and keep in mind there was only one commandment God had given at the time. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else you can do. Enjoy this beautiful Edenic garden that I've created for you. So many freedoms, so many opportunities. I got one rule. Probably within hours, Adam and Eve broke that rule. And were cast out of the garden. And the consequence of that event was that God's angels would bar us from enjoying God's original design for us, which was eternal life. This is what it means when it says God guarded the way to the tree of life. Eternal life would no longer be available to us as the default. Physical death and spiritual death have reigned on this planet from that day until now. I need somebody to volunteer to help me out with something. I need you to have an iPhone, a reasonably loud voice, and being unafraid of being centered out. Do we have any volunteers? Okay, Yusuf, of course. He's always the center of attention. So Yusuf, why don't you stand up? I want you to open up your, your timer, you know, your clock app thingamabob, and I just want you to set the timer to 10 seconds. And when you get there, and you get it all set up, and you're ready to hit start, say go, and then when it comes to the end of 10 seconds, say stop. That's all I want you to do. Okay. Okay, you can sit down. Thank you, Yusuf. Appreciate that. 
Oh, sure, he gets claps, I don't. <laughs> I put all this work and he stands up for 10 seconds. Come on. Okay, 10 seconds. Pretty brief, right? During that 10-second window of time, 18 people died on planet Earth. That's a statistical fact. Every 10 seconds, 18 descendants from Adam and Eve die and either go to a Christless eternity or a Christ-filled eternity. The Bible predicted that that would be the case if we sinned against God. And it's been part of the human condition ever since. You ever think about that? You're a mortal. I'm a mortal. One day, several of you will attend my funeral. One day, I may be attending your funeral. We have lost out on eternal life because of our sin. That's what we're taught in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. And it's really a sobering, sad thing to think about. However, if we look ahead, God has another message for us recorded in his word. And in Revelation chapter 22, looking forward, this is what God promises those of us that have surrendered our lives to Jesus. Remember the angel guarding the way to the tree of life? There's another angel that shows up. And this angel has a message for us to consider. Revelation 22.1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Notice the source of this life. It's flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, who is Jesus Christ, through the middle of the street of the city, that is the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So opening chapters of the Bible, death is our destiny because of our rebellion against God. In the final chapter of the Bible, that which was lost in Eden can be regained through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And really, chapters 21 and 22 could be preached all together. I've just divided them up over two weeks. But what both of them do is they paint this beautiful picture, this portrait for us of what people of faith have to look forward to. So as we, as we consider this, the, the proper attitude is, okay, I've heard it, Lord, we do deserve damnation. We do deserve death. We do deserve eternal separation from you, but we repent. We beg for mercy. We cast ourselves up upon your grace. We're asking for you to change us. And then we give it up for Christ in order to regain the eternal life which we lost in heaven. We give up selfishness, we give up sin, we give up pride, we give up false religion, and we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. This is the message of the gospel, and we have access to the tree of life. 
Last Sunday, I shared with you six blessings, six things that we can look forward to in heaven. I want to add to that list. I'm going to give you three more. And then four ways for us to respond to what we've heard over the last couple of Sundays. First thing, which would be number seven on the list, if you take into consideration the six from last week, is that paradise will be restored. In verses 1 and 2, we'll have access to the tree of life. The tree of life symbolizes eternal life. Available only for those that abide in the presence of God from whom true life comes. The text talks about a clear river, clear as crystal As we've talked about before, people in first century Israel and around the Mediterranean, we think, oh, they're all, they all must have been fishermen. They're living right by the sea, but most of them weren't. They were scared of water. The water represented chaos. It was, it was a fearful place. And understandably, because nowadays we have these massive ships equipped with all their technology. And if one of them sinks, it's like international news. Like, really? How could one of these sink? Thousands of years ago, when you're bombing across the Mediterranean in a wooden boat, there was a very high likelihood that you wouldn't make it. So people died all the time. And so water was considered an unsafe place, a fearful place, a chaotic place. Even today, if most of us were given the option, okay, do you want to swim in this beautiful, crystal clear, well-chlorinated pool? You can see right to the bottom. You can see the sides. Do you want to swim in that? Or do you want to swim in this muddy old creek? Who knows what's in there? Depending on where you are, maybe there's piranha in there. Maybe there's eels in there. Maybe there's garbage that's been thrown in there that can tangle you up. Who knows what's in there? Maybe there's bacteria in there, this muddy old river. We would pick the clear water, the treated swimming pool, because murky water is not safe. But in this heavenly picture, we have a clear, crystal clear, shiny river flowing out from the throne of God, symbolizing the life the safety, the comfort that is available in God alone. There's no ambiguity to clear water. There's ambiguity to murky, muddy water. The tree of life is also laden with 12 fruits. So two numbers that most often symbolize perfection in Revelation are what? Seven and 12. So the 12 fruits speak of God's perfection. They speak of eternal life. They speak of the opportunity for continuous perfection in heaven. So right right away we learn that that which was lost in sin can be regained through our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. So we can praise God for that. The eighth blessing of heaven is the curse which descended upon our world because of our sin is replaced with co-regency. This is one of the most fascinating aspects of our eternal sanctification, I think. Because 
they seem to be contradictory, but on one hand, the Bible speaks of us entering into the eternal kingdom and being servants of Christ. We're his servants. And when you're a servant, you're subservient to some master, some greater being. You serve that person. You can't say, oh, I'm, I'm both the king and a servant at the same time. No, you're one or the other. And the Bible speaks of our place in the kingdom of God as being one of service to the king of kings and lord of lords. But at the same time, isn't it amazing that we are invited to reign with him? How, how can it be that both of those things are true? Well, they are true in the eternal kingdom. It's kind of like a king who invites his children, his sons and daughters, to rule with him. He's still the king. The throne is not theirs, but they're part of the royal family. The Bible even speaks of us as a royal priesthood. Now, the th- one of the dominant themes in Genesis is that because of sin, everything gets cursed. So Genesis 3.17, the serpent gets cursed. That curse is never removed. The serpent, who is Satan himself, will spend eternally eternity eternally separated from the one that gave him life and existence in the first place. That's Genesis 3.14. In Genesis 3.17, the ground is cursed. And then we're told the same thing in Genesis chapter 4, verse 11. The ground, the earth, the, the physical world is actually cursed and blemished because of sin. Now, in the West... There's a lot of talk and a lot of attention and a lot of money poured into discussions and education and projects about saving the environment. Want to save the environment. Now, from a Christian perspective, if you're a steward, you're not an owner, you're a steward of the world, and God has given it to you to tend and to take care of, it's wasteful and it's bad stewardship to destroy that which God has entrusted to you to steward. So we should be careful about not just our time, talents, and treasures, but also we should be careful about the way that we treat the physical environment around us. But at the same time, what we need to understand is that the physical environment, the ground that we actually walk on, is cursed because of sin. You can pour all the money, all the attention, all the plans you want into saving the environment, and the earth will continue to diminish. It will continue to diminish. Because it is also groaning and moaning and suffering under the effects of sin. You will never rescue the environment. You will never never ultimately turn the world into some sort of Garden of Eden again. The ground itself is cursed because of sin. You can expect more flooding. You can expect more deserts. You can expect more ecological interruptions. You can expect more earthquakes. The Bible speaks of these things. The universe itself is winding down toward death and destruction because of sin. This is the word of God. And yet as strange as all of this might seem, that sin actually affects the world on that level. As strange as hearing words of God cursing the ground and the serpent and us with death because of our sin. 
God's curse is not an eternal one for those of us that love him. Because in heaven, God declares, look at verse 3 in your Bibles, no longer will there be anything accursed. Curse will be removed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants, look at that word, we're servants of God. His servants will worship him. And then we have a summary of at least three of the blessings we talked about last Sunday. They will see his face, so we'll have a face-to-face encounter with him. His name will be on their foreheads, meaning that he will own us and his ownership will be evident and night will be no more meaning that which scares us and frightens us will be taken away. So that's a, that's a summary of three of the blessings we discussed in chapter 21. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And then it says, and they will reign forever and ever. There you have it, just in a few verses. You will simultaneously be God's servant, and you will also be God's co-regent. You will reign with him as part of the royal family forever and ever and ever. And this is a wonderful thing. This speaks of God's eternal plan to secure for himself out of fallen humanity, a people that are redeemed, who can in turn share in his eternal kingdom, share in the paradise of heaven. Part of sharing with God is reigning with God. This does not mean, by the way, that we will become gods like Mormonism teaches. Like one of my great-grandfathers, who was a Mormon church planter, taught. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach that we will become gods, but as sons and daughters of the king, we will fully participate in the benefits and the blessings and the bonuses of Christ's heavenly kingdom, subservient to the ultimate king, of course, but royal nonetheless. So what do we do with this? Here's some things I think we should do with this. First thing that comes to mind is gratitude. It is so easy to whine and complain about what you don't have. I don't have as much money as they do. I don't have as many friends as they do. I'm not as healthy as them. Not as many people talk to me as other people. On and on and on. Oh me, oh my. You know, we talk a lot in our culture about self-confidence and self-esteem. We're like, we want to make sure we... Raise a generation of kids that have good self-esteem. Usually that just means um, selfishness, self-focus, or self-interest, or self-sustenance, or something like that. But we talk a lot about that. We want people to have self-esteem, good, healthy self-esteem, self-confidence. See, I think the greatest boost to your self-esteem is this teaching. The eternal God of the universe, in spite of your sin, loves you. 
And he invites you into his presence, not just to cower in the corner as his little knave, but he invites you into his eternal kingdom to reign with him. I mean, how awesome is that? Oftentimes, our self-esteem, our self-confidence is in the gutter for this very simple reason. We're more concerned about what other people think about us than we are about what God has declared to be true about us. And really, that's a form of idolatry because we're replacing God's supreme opinion, putting people's opinion higher than God's. We're idolizing what other people think or what society says about us instead of finding our worth and our value in what Christ has declared to be true about us. Now, if you lock into this, you can live a truly biblically confident life even if you die in obscurity with no friends, believe it or not. Because you've chosen to believe what God has to say about you. And if you followed him and surrendered yourself to him, we shouldn't be whining about our status, but rejoicing in our position with God. Secondly, we need to make sure we're not falling into the trap of trying to usurp his authority, which really is kind of the basis of sin, right? We're trying to usurp God's authority. We're trying to rule our lives our own way, make up our own rules, follow our own agendas. When we see God as the king who lovingly invites us into his rule, we're going to want to follow him. If we don't follow the king, what are we? We're traitors. We're ungrateful wretches. But instead of usurping God's authority, then we choose obedience. And then the third response would be to say, Lord, I think we just got more than we deserve. And I'm thankful for that. And I want to worship you because of that. Thank you for giving me that which I do not deserve. This is application to this truth that we've heard. The ninth blessing is perpetual health, which really is probably a different way of just saying eternal life. But if you go back up to verse 2, it says that we will receive healing. It's, it talks about the healing of the nations. Spiritual healing is available to us. Mental healing is available to us. Emotional healing. Ultimately, physical healing you know how many diseases there are in the world? Nobody even knows. Just Google it. It's like this long list. And then there's all kinds of undiagnosed diseases, ailments, problems. We are constantly being threatened with disease and with death. Well, if, if, you, if you kick cancer, well, wait for the heart attack. If you kick that, wait for diabetes. If you kick that, wait for something else. We're constantly at threat of disease and death. But in the eternal kingdom, God will offer healing for the nations. No more sickness, no more death will be permitted in the eternal kingdom of God. And he said to me, this is verse 6, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servant what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. There's that word, twice. Christ is coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. 
One of the things that every biblical Christian embraces is the second coming of Christ. And we embrace the fact that it's going to happen soon. We talk about imminency. It could happen any time. So each generation, this is our generation. This is when God created us. This is our time right now, church. We must live our lives as if Jesus could come back right now. Now, he may not come back for 100 generations, or he may come back before I finish the sermon today. But he's coming back soon. You're thinking, well, yeah, but this is 2,000 years old. The early Christians thought it was soon, and this is 2,000 years later. Clearly, there's a problem here. That's because you're measuring soon by human standards. And because our lives are so short, 2,000 years seems like a long time. A hundred more generations seems like a long time. But in the eternal plan of God, that's nothing. That's a blip. A day to the Lord, it's like a thousand years. A thousand years to the Lord, like a day. It doesn't matter to God. It's all little blips in time. Our lives, just little blips in time to God. God says, I'm coming soon. And he says that because he wants us to be ready. He wants us to act like we're Christians. Not just in worship services. He wants us to act like Christians at work. You may not make it through Monday. You may have received your last paycheck. Christ might come back. Are you living prepped and ready for that? Or are you like, yeah, he probably statistically isn't going to come now, so I'm just going to kind of do my own thing and not live particularly, particularly urgent life. That's an error. God is calling us to live our lives as if Jesus could come back right now. How do we respond further to this? I have four things that I'm seeing here. God's delivered to us this spectacular futuristic vision. And before the book ends, he's like, here's what I want you to do. You ready for this? This is kind of summarizing some of the things we've already taught, but this is what God wants you and I to do, having heard this message. The first thing he wants us to do is to obey. In verse 7, he talks about the blessing that will come to those who keep the words. Who keep the words. If you want to benefit, don't disobey like Adam and Eve benefited. Again, Garden of Eden. Okay, Lord, we're here, we're created. I'm Adam, this is Eve, finally picked a name for her. What are the rules? What's the playbook? What are the boundaries? Well, you can do whatever you want. Really? No rule? Oh, I got one. Don't eat from that tree over there. Just one rule. And they disobeyed God's words. And look at the result of that. Every person that dies today, every child somewhere in our world that's hungry today, Every act of sexual abuse, every person that will be shot dead in the streets of their town or city, every cancer diagnosis, every broken marriage, every lonely person that has ever lived is experiencing what they're experiencing because Adam and Eve disobeyed one single rule. Think of the catastrophic, millennia-long consequences for one sin. Our world 
is a nightmare. Sometimes in our cozy little western towns and cities, we sometimes forget about that. This This is a nightmare. And it's because of sin. It's because people chose to do things their way instead of obeying what their benevolent, loving, protective, and good creator told them to do. And we continue to make that same mistake generation after generation. God's like, obey me. Obey me. We have this vision. I am good. I am holy. I am benevolent. I am forgiving. Just obey me. This is a call to obedience. Blessed are those who wash their robes. This means who live righteously so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. Now outside, he says, are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Just as disobedience came into this world through one man's sin. So your continued disobedience can bar you from heaven as well. People marked by unrighteousness, and there's a little list here of some common unrighteous behavior, will not inherit the kingdom of God. We are called to live righteously, not unrighteously. I'm a Christian and I think I might have committed some of these sins. Now what? I think I've maybe at times worshipped other gods. I've committed sexually immoral acts. I've taken someone's life or at least thought about it. I've worshipped idols. So where does this leave me? Does it mean that I'm eternally barred from the new heaven and the new earth? Many Christians wrestle with this because we're redeemed, we love Jesus. But as we assess our lives, we're like, you know, there's a few things that I've thought about this week or done this week I hope nobody finds out. I hope nobody knows. I hope nobody overheard me say that. Do that. Thank God that they can't read my heart. Kind of wrestle with this. So let's bring some clarity to this. First of all, what this cannot mean is that a person who commits an act of sorcery or sexual immorality or idolatry, etc. What this cannot mean is a person who's a Christian that commits these things is cut off from eternal life. You know why it can't mean that? Because David was an adulterer who later is called a man after God's own heart. David took a man's life who later on is called a man after God's own heart. Peter denied even knowing Jesus in the face of fear. 
but becomes an outstanding apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we look at scripture, we see people like Moses who blew it, strikes the rock, gets angry. God's like, there's no promised land for you, Moses. But his name's still in the, 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 the hall of faith list in Hebrews. So what it cannot mean is that if a Christian commits an adulterous act, an adulterous act, a sexually immoral act, lies, cheats, or steals, that person is eternally separated from God. But what it does mean is that if a person is these things, if a person is an adulterer, is a liar, is sexually immoral, then that person will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you look at the text, having spelled out this list, it says, and everyone who loves and practices, continuing sense, falsehood. So this is what you need to assess in your life. As a Christian, there may be times when you commit an act of sorcery, and then you're like, that was wrong. I know it was wrong. And you immediately go to the Lord and you confess your sins and you repent of it and you turn away from it. That's a sign of saving faith. But the person is like, yeah, whatever. I kind of like that. I might even do it again. I practice this. It's part of my life. That person is at risk of revealing to all and especially to God that they are not, in fact, converted at all. So there's a difference between someone who commits an adulterous act and someone who is an adulterer. Someone who commits a sexually immoral act and who is, it's part of their identity. It's like a label they wear. I am sexually immoral. I am a liar. I am an adulterer. I am a sorcerer. Do you wear that label? If you wear that label, the word of God says very clearly, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Someone commits a homosexual act. Are they eternally banned from the kingdom of God? No. If they are a homosexual, that's my identity. I'm a homosexual. I am a liar. I am a child molester. I am an adulterer. Read the lists in the Bible. It's very clear. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. They love it. They practice it. They don't repent of it. They continue in it. It's part of their identity. And it demonstrates that their identity, in fact, is as a child of Satan rather than a child of God. And by the way, God has written his law upon the hearts of humanity. We know these things to be true. Even apart from Christ, we know these things to be true. But increasingly, our world is telling us all these things are just matters of personal choice or personal opinion. And if you disagree with us, we're going to do something to you. People marked by these things will not inherit the kingdom. And so here we have this call to obey. And then secondly, we have a call to worship God. This is the second time John makes the same mistake. It shows that even, even a man who's like in the presence of God, he's like having this incredible encounter with God. He's actually sinning a couple times. You can, you can sin at church. You know that, right? You can sin in the middle of a worship song. You can sin in the middle of preaching a sermon, listening to a sermon. You can sin while you're feeding the poor. You can sin. 
This is the second time John commits the exact same sin. Check it out in verse 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. Really? Weren't you already chastised for this earlier? The angel says to him, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. In the moment, you know, in the, in the emotion, in the hype, in the sacredness of this apocalyptic vision, John is overwhelmed. And rather than being governed by the spoken word of God, He's governed by his own flesh, and he falls down to worship the angel. This is huge, folks, because oftentimes we're like, well, it's got to be true because I feel it's true. It's got to be true because it's part of my worship. It's got to be true because I just felt it. It's like, no, it's actually wrong. It's actually false. What you're doing right now is sinful. It's self-serving. It's, it's idolatrous or whatever. He commits a sinful act while he's receiving inspired truth from God. It's, it's, it's amazing to think about that and the implications of that. But the angel redirects him upward to worship God. God and God alone is worthy of our eternal worship. But sometimes we worship ourselves Sometimes we worship our denominations, our leaders. We worship a particular political party. We worship our spouses. We worship our jobs. We worship our stuff. We worship them. We fall down before them. We find ultimate satisfaction in them. Most of us aren't running around carving statuettes of Moloch putting them on our fireplace mantles and bowing down three times a day to worship them. Our idolatry can be much more subtle. So this requires us to constantly be evaluating, like what is it that I'm finding satisfaction? What is it that kind of draws my attention? Worship God and God alone. Third, we wait. And he said to me, this is verse 10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. What God is not saying here is not endorsing filthiness. He's not endorsing evil. But it's as if God is saying, you know what? Let the evildoers continue to do that. And let the filthy continue to engage in their filthy immoral acts. But to the people of God, do righteousness. Live a holy life. Be set apart. Be different. And in saying this, God is really declaring his sovereignty over all things. He allows both good and bad to live at the same time in the same world because he knows that in the end he wins and all things will be made new. Verse 12 says, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. He will repay each one both good and bad, for what they've done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. This is a letter given to John, but it's for the churches. It's for us. 
I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star, meaning I am the Messiah. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the waters of life without price. It's free. Let them come. Let them receive from me. Do you ever struggle with like waiting upon the Lord, being patient? Waiting upon the Lord is a constant challenge, but I know why it's a constant challenge. It's not because of a short attention span. It's not a personality characteristic. Waiting upon the Lord and being patient is tough if we don't come to Christ on a regular daily basis. When we come to Christ, we find satisfaction in his presence. And when we find satisfaction in his presence, it's like, oh, I I can wait for some more of this. I can be patient. I'm, I'm feeling satisfied in the moment. I'm enjoying this time with Christ. So if you're struggling with patience, with waiting upon the Lord to ultimately bring recompense, you need to come. You need to come close to the Lord. You need to draw close to him. You need to find joy and peace in his presence. Guaranteed that will enable you and allow you to wait for the day when God will ultimately come. And while in that context, we won't be dismissive of evil, we'll be able to say along with God, yeah, the evil are going to do evil and the filthy are going to be filthy. But I'm going to choose righteousness and holiness because in the end, I know who wins. I know who wins. I know that God ultimately wins. Finally, this is the fourth response. Don't twist God's word. The Bible says, this is the last few verses of the whole Bible, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We don't add to God's word. We don't subtract from God's word. I understand that this warning is specifically in reference to this book. But really, it also applies to the whole of Scripture, which is all God's word. We don't add to God's word. We don't subtract from God's word. We don't skirt around the challenging parts because they're culturally insensitive. We don't preach the parts that are just affirmative. We preach those and we preach those that challenge us. We do not preach to the people of God in order to condemn them. We do preach to the people of God in order to convict them so that we might live lives that are more upright, so that we might follow hard in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we say in our context, we preach unapologetically. Creatures don't apologize to creatures for what the creator has said. We don't apologize to our politicians for what the the creator has said. We don't apologize to judges for what the creator has said. We don't apologize to our neighbors for what the creator has said. We speak the truth, the whole truth, 
and nothing but the truth, believing that God's word can transform even the hardest of hearts and the darkest of souls to bring honor and glory to his mighty name. And so let us do these things. Let us be a people that doesn't just use revelation to think about what's going to come, but let's, let's, let's borrow the benefits. Let's obey the commands that God speaks to us through this apocalyptic book, and let's live it out in the here and now to the honor and glory of God. Finally, we have our benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all, because we need it. Amen. Amen.